It is a double honor to be with you all this morning. First, although not currently serving as a preacher, I did preach consistently from 2016 to 2020 while I was working on my doctorate. I preach only occasionally these days, but I have to confess, I find preaching to be much harder than teaching Bible class, which I do multiple times a week. Although I'm not exactly sure why, I feel much more comfortable teaching a text than preaching it. And I admit there perhaps is a fine line between the two. That being said, I'm honored to have the opportunity to share with those who do a work which I do not feel particularly adequate to do. The second honor is to present in this context of the Neller Preacher's Workshop. When I was an undergraduate student at Harding from 2004 to 2008, I had the privilege of studying under Dr. Ken Neller for Greek 3 and Greek 4, Gospel of John and 1 Corinthians, respectively. Dr. Neller challenged all of us to study God's Word more deeply, and one day in particular he challenged me directly. While in Greek 4, I was also Dr. Dwayne Warden's teacher's assistant, and I substitute taught his Greek 2 class for a couple of days while he was out of town. I took this opportunity very seriously and even wore a suit and tie for the class. I had Greek with Dr. Neller right before I subbed for Dr. Warden, and Dr. Neller asked me why I was so dressed up. I told him what I was doing, and he offered this friendly challenge. Well, he said, it takes more than a suit to be a Greek teacher. <laughs> I knew he meant to push me to do well, and I distinctly remember thinking, all right, I'll show you. Brothers and sisters, I'm now in my fifth year of teaching Greek 1 and 2 for Harding School of Theology, and I am here today in part because of men like Dwayne Warden, Paul Pollard, Richard Oster, Alan Black, and especially Ken Neller, whom we will see again in the resurrection. Now, as we begin our study of Colossians, allow me to introduce the letter somewhat briefly. There are five broad but distinct types or genres of literature that make up the New Testament. Biography, historiography, letters, sermons, and lastly in the New Testament is apocalypse. Colossians is, of course, a letter. The primary reason Paul wrote letters was to maintain contact with friends and churches. These letters served as pastoral proxies, communications designed to substitute for his presence when he could not physically be there to teach, encourage, admonish, or correct the recipients. Now, reading a letter from Paul was like having Paul in the room. He usually, but not always, wrote letters to churches that he had planted or to individuals he knew in order to address specific situations, questions, and or concerns. See, for example, 1 Corinthians 7, 1a. Sometimes Paul needed to clarify something he wrote in a previous letter, as he does in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-10. Although we know some churches, and undoubtedly some individuals too, wrote letters to Paul, because we have only Paul's correspondence, we have to read between the lines of these letters, or behind the text, as I like to put it. Reading the letters to discern what problems Paul addressed, what questions he sought to answer, and what behaviors he needed to encourage or correct helps us determine the situation or occasion of the letter, that is, what was happening in the churches that prompted Paul to write what he wrote. Reading behind the text like this also requires humility, because without an explicit statement from Paul or, for example, a corroborating statement from Luke, as he describes Paul's missionary journeys, our conclusions are necessarily tentative. This is precisely how we must approach Colossians, because as we read through the letter, we see quite clearly there's eh, something strange in the neighborhood, something weird, and it don't look good. Who are they going to call? Better call Paul, or at least that's what Epaphras thought. In Colossians 1.8, 
Epaphras has told us, that is, Paul and Timothy, likely some others too, based on those mentioned in Paul's final greetings in Colossians 4. Epaphras has told Paul of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. We can reasonably infer Epaphras told Paul other things as well, particularly regarding the errant teaching that is plaguing the young church in Colossae. And later on, we'll touch on some specifics of the Colossian heresy, as some scholars call it. But for now, we can summarize the basics of this heretical teaching as Christ plus. Now, I admit that sounds like an online Christian streaming service, but trust me, you don't want this service because it will cost you your soul. You see, the basic premise of Christ plus is the insufficiency of the person and work of Jesus, which, according to this teaching, means you need to do extra things, described in some detail in Colossians 2, in order to make up the difference. Paul has been made aware of this situation, which is why he writes a short but powerful letter. As we turn to the text of Colossians, I want to give us a broad overview of the book, and to do that, I'm going to give us one important tool for reading any letter in the New Testament. Ask yourself this question. Is Paul telling me about something, or is he telling me to do something? In other words, is the focus of this verse or passage doctrinal or ethical? All right, I admit this is a simplified hermeneutic, a very basic way of interpreting texts. Sometimes the line between doctrinal and ethical material is not easily discernible. Sometimes doctrinal matters have clear ethical implications, which Paul may or may not spell out. And other times, ethical instructions may have clear doctrinal implications, which Paul may or may not spell out. However, this hermeneutic is nonetheless a very helpful way for teaching others how to read God's word more carefully. And not only that, this provides us with a useful way to understand Paul's flow of thought throughout all of his letters. I visualized it looks something like this. Paul typically begins with a statement, normally a thanksgiving, which focuses on who God is or what God has done. On that basis, Paul instructs the recipients to live in a certain way. Living in that way is, furthermore, a reflection of what God has done for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I have Dr. Mark Powell, Dean of Harding School of Theology, to thank for that formulation of God's Word. So, on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul therefore tells the believers to do these things and stop doing other things. This is a general pattern that plays out with some degree of variation throughout all of Paul's letters, and Colossians is no exception. Paul opens the letter with his customary greeting where he wishes for God's grace and peace on the audience. He encourages the Colossians by telling them how he and his co-workers always thank God for their faithfulness in Christ and their growth in the gospel, which Epaphras shared with them. Then Paul prays for the Colossians to be filled with knowledge and insight so they can continually live worthy lives characterized by spiritual strengthening, endurance, patience, joy, and thanksgiving for the spiritual inheritance, deliverance, and redemption which are found in Jesus. As Paul is talking about what God has done for us in Jesus, he segues into one of the highest statements of Christology in the New Testament. God created the entire cosmos through Jesus, the all-sufficient King who rules over everything in the heavenly realms. It is this same person who reconciles and redeems believers who, on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ, are charged with remaining faithful to the good news that Jesus is King. Paul himself is also served to spread this good news of Jesus' kingship so that even the Gentiles would come to share the riches of God's glory and to experience the full, mature knowledge of what God has done for them in Christ. On this basis, the believers should behave in certain ways. First off, of walking in Christ, 
confident not to be taken in by empty traditions, deceitful philosophy, or hostile worldly spirits, because the enthroned Christ is all sufficient for the believer's spiritual needs. Therefore, they should not let anyone disqualify them with additional requirements and syncretistic practices, which are of no ultimate value. Instead, because the Colossians have been raised with Christ, they should seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. They must take off the vices that characterized them in the past and put on the virtues they learned in Christ. Now, this process of letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly has real and practical implications for their families, too. Lastly, they must continue in prayer, and they must be careful in how they interact with outsiders. After these concluding exhortations, Paul closes the letter with some final greetings, and his own signature is a sign of the letter's genuineness. Now, if you don't already have your Bible open, turn with me to Colossians. In the interest of time, I'll read particular verses when necessary, but let me encourage you to follow along as I reference the passages we're discussing. I do, however, want to read the first two verses to give us some context. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus the Christ, chosen through God's will with Timothy our brother, to the saints in Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you all from God our Father. Now obviously we won't spend our whole time together on verses 1 and 2, but we really could if we wanted to because there's so much to discover if we just took the time to dig even a little into what each of these concepts are. These verses may seem relatively uninteresting because they're only the letters opening, but let's not take the text for granted. If at any time your Bible reading and study begins to feel stale, I want you to train yourself to start asking these two questions. First, what does this word or concept really mean? And second, how would the first audience have understood this? Now, These questions should push us to the point where we can readily explain both common and complex ideas and concepts to the lifelong Christian and the new Christian and everywhere in between. And I will try to model that as we go along. Paul opens a letter to the Colossians according to letter-writing convention of the time, which includes the names of the sender, and in this instance the co-sender, Timothy, at the beginning, followed by the recipients. Most of us are familiar with Paul the Apostle, Paul the missionary, and Paul the letter-writer. But don't forget Paul was not the only one involved in writing several of his letters. Timothy appears as the co-sender in this letter and in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, with Silvanus, and Philemon. It's easy to think of Paul as the Lord's lone ranger, but he often worked with a team. When God calls us to an important work, let's not forget the great benefit of working alongside the brothers and sisters in Christ whom God has placed in our lives, particularly in the form of mentoring young men and women in the faith. Another notable feature of the introduction is how Paul addresses the Colossians. They're not simply the church in Colossae, nor just the faithful brothers in Colossae. They are saints and faithful brothers. Okay, well, what does the word saint mean? In the New Testament, it doesn't mean super-Christian. It doesn't refer to only the best Christians. Saints in this context means holy ones, those who specially belong to God. Holy is something like this, set apart, specially reserved. <laughs> How about an example from around the house? All right, make sure you don't use the good sewing scissors to open you up your Amazon boxes. Those are holy scissors, and don't you dare. <laughs> All right, you get the idea. Holiness is a defining characteristic of believers, really, of God's people throughout history. You aren't just battered and bruised by the world, you're holy. I like particularly how James Thompson puts it. By referring to the audience as saints, Paul, quote, establishes the collective identity of the listeners, who are not 
united by ethnicity, social class, age, or gender, but by their incorporation in Christ. Paul indicates that they are the heirs of ancient Israel, the people who are called holy as God is holy and separate from the larger society. End quote. This term saint really serves a dual purpose. First, it's a reminder of whom the Colossians belong to, and two, an encouragement for them to continue living holy lives. There's one more thing we need to look at before we move into the body of the letter. Colossians are saints and faithful brothers in Christ. This is another good time to stop and ask, what does this mean? How would the first audience have understood this phrase, in Christ? The prepositional phrase, in Christ, is fairly common in Paul's letters, and and so, because we're familiar with it, we may assume we know what it means. But the reality of being in Christ is so significant for Paul and the believers that we cannot just gloss over it. You see, in a spiritual sense, and just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it is less real, but in a spiritual sense, believers are spiritually located in Christ. We've been transferred from the dominion or realm of death and brought into the life-giving realm of God's enthroned anointed one. We now live within the sphere of Christ's redemptive, loving, and just influence. Being in Christ constitutes, as Douglas Moo says, quote, a total reorientation of one's existence, end quote. For the typical believer in the first century who grew up in a culture much more spiritually sensitive than ours today, this is gospel. No longer are you susceptible to fate or capricious spiritual beings who operate in the heavenly realms and affect earthly life. No, no. The good news is that you are now bound with the one who's over all things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And the simple phrase, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul foreshadows what he will develop more fully in the body of the letter. Turning to verses 3 through 14, Paul begins the body of the letter with a statement of thanksgiving and a prayer for the Colossians. You can take these verses as one large unit consisting of two smaller sections, a prayer of both thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8, and a prayer of intercession, verses 9 through 14. According to New Testament scholar Craig Keener, when Paul starts his letters like this, these opening prayers served rhetorical and relational purposes. He says, quote, Thanksgivings to God or gods were fairly common in the openings of ancient letters. In Paul's letters, they often introduce major themes, and he can begin the letter with a positive relationship with the readers. End quote. Paul is thankful to God for the Colossians' faith, love, and hope. Now, as you're preaching and teaching this material, this is another good place to stop and explain what Paul means by these three Christian virtues. Faith here, as in many other places in Paul's letters, must mean something more than mere belief. Yes, we begin with belief when we become a Christian, but we do not pledge our belief to Christ. We pledge our loyalty, our fidelity, our faithfulness, our allegiance to Christ. By way of analogy, it is one thing to believe you are married. It is a much different thing to be faithful to your marriage. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Colossians' faithfulness to Christ leads to their loving regard for other saints. Both faith and love in this instance can be understood as attitudes which lead to action. The basis of their faith and love is the hope they have laid up for them in the heavenly realms. Hope in this context refers to, quote, the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come, end quote. And I'm quoting from a Greek lexicon there. And hope 
safeguarded in the heavenly realms where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and ruling, perhaps foreshadowing Colossians 3, verse 1, such a hope cannot be shaken. Here in verse 5, most standard translations read like this, hope stored up for you in heaven. This is accurate, but not precise. Paul's word for heaven is plural, not singular. So I think heavenly realms is preferable for three reasons. One, it's a better translation of what Paul says it means. Two, the idea of heavenly realms more accurately reflects the Jewish and early Christian worldview, which acknowledged not just one heaven, but multiple levels of heavenly spaces. Uh, compare, for example, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Third, visualizing this space as the heavenly realms anticipates Paul's special emphasis on the supremacy of Christ over everything that exists within these realms, the very kinds of spirits that preoccupied the thoughts of every pagan who was even halfway religious. This good news is that Christ stands over these, and all of this good news has been delivered to the Colossians through Epaphras' faithful work, a fact which once again reminds us of the importance of partnership in ministry. Now, in the second half of Paul's prayer, Colossians 1, verses 9-14, he includes an intercession on behalf of the Colossians. And he notes that he ceaselessly asks God to fill them with the knowledge of his will, that is, with holy spiritual wisdom and understanding. Since Epaphras had relatively recently brought the gospel to the Colossians, it's quite understandable why Paul and his co-workers would need to pray for them to grow in the knowledge of God's will. As we go on, we'll see that growing in the knowledge of God is a theme to which Paul will return later in chapter 1, verse 28, as well as in chapters 2 and 3. Now, the purpose for their growth in knowledge, wisdom, and insight is for them, quote, to walk worthily of the Lord toward everything pleasing to Him, chapter 1, verse 10. The metaphor of walking in faithfulness to God is vivid and rich. Douglas Moo puts it nicely, quote, Paul's use of the verb meaning walk, see also chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 5, picks up a common Jewish and biblical idiom according to which a person's lifestyle is pictured as a road that one travels along. Frequently, especially in wisdom literature, two paths or ways are contrasted as a way of confronting the righteous with the decisive choice that they must make, end quote. Now, bear with me here. As iron sharpens iron, so a little Greek grammar can be helpful at times. Walking worthily in verse 10 is further described by four present tense adverbial participles which detail how we walk worthily, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, being strengthened, and giving thanks. Adverbially, each of these explains the manner of the transformation the Colossians will experience, and the present tense indicates these behaviors are to be continually embodied. Now, these specific manners of walking worthily are predicated on the content of verses 13 through 20. Now, backing up just a bit, verses 12b through 14 function as a transition point where Paul closes his intercessory prayer and again comments directly on what God has done for us in Christ. Verses 13 through 20 are best understood as Christologically theocentric. God is the ultimate focus, but Jesus, the cosmically powerful enthroned Messiah, is the lens through which we focus on God the Father. As a smaller unit, verses 15 through 20 comprise one of the highest statements of Christology in the entire New Testament, 
ranking right alongside John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I want to read for you my translation of verses 13 through 20, what I like to call the KBV, and I'll have it up here for you to see it. He who delivered us out from the dominion of darkness has also transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, because in him all things in the heavenly realms and upon the earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. All things hold together in him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, in order that he should be preeminent in everything. For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on the earth or things in the heavenly realms, after making peace through the blood of his cross. Now in verse 13, it is God who has delivered us from the dominion, according to the NIV, or domain, from the ESV, of darkness. And the phrase out from evokes the idea of separation. I don't prefer the NRSV's power of darkness here. Yes, spiritual forces of evil do have power in the world. That much is clear. But the word Paul uses here is really a political term, which means something closer to under the laws or jurisdiction of in this context. The unbeliever lives under the jurisdiction of evil, spiritual powers, a condition best described as slavery to Satan and sin. But God has brought us out from the reign and rule of death and darkness into the kingdom, that is, within the reign and rule of the beloved Son, in whose sphere of influence the Colossians experience redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The concept of redemption in verse 14 is another concept which we may unintentionally gloss over because we, with some justification, are familiar with this term. We hear it all the time in church. But again, we must be willing to stop and ask ourselves, what does this word or concept really mean? How would the first audience have understood this? Now, within the Greco-Roman world, you would primarily encounter this Greek word, apolutrosis, in reference to either the ransom payment of a captive or the purchase of an enslaved person, for the purpose of release. The word's connotation within these contexts had nothing to do with eschatological salvation. However, there's a thread running, running through these acts which Paul and other Christians pick up on and adapt for their own use. Not only is their use of this term influenced by Israel's history of being redeemed from Egyptian slavery, but the practice of sacral manumission provides a somewhat analogous metaphor. Everett Ferguson explains the process. Quote, the slave's freedom was purchased in a pagan temple in the name of the deity and with funds furnished to the deity by the slave. The Jewish synagogue served the same function. The deity served as an intermediary, negotiating the purchase in the place of the slave who could not enter into a legal contract. The slave became free and the fact was recorded in the temple's records. End quote. And the process of sacral manumission, in other words, the sacred release of the enslaved, is analogous to the first Christian's conception of redemption, but it's not precisely the same. For the sacrally manumitted slave, he or she had no expectation of ever becoming a slave again. But for the Christian, we can reasonably expect to become slaves to God, Paul described himself as such, while at the same time, paradoxically, 
According to verse 12, we're also sons of the Father who had qualified us for a share of the saints' inheritance. Quote, the terms share and inheritance are used together in the Septuagint to refer to the promised land, for example, Deuteronomy 10 and 32 and Joshua 19, end quote. According to Charles Talbert, the blessings of place and provision inherent to the covenant promises made to and through Abraham and reinforced through Moses find their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. Now, according to N.T. Wright, who is much more eloquent than I will ever be, and not just because he has a cool British accent, this language of the Father qualifying us for a share of the saints' inheritance in the light, quote, seems at first sight a complicated way of saying that God has called the Colossians to hear and receive the gospel. That is indeed Paul's underlying meaning, but expressing it thus enables Paul to evoke a whole world of imagery relating to Israel's exodus from Egypt and her entry into the promised land. The inheritance alludes to the promised land of Canaan. The saints is a regular term for the people of God, indicating that they are set apart from the world for his service. The parallel in Ephesians 2, 11-13 suggests the idea that the heritage of God's people is no longer the prerogative of one race but has been opened up so that people of every conceivable background can share it. The promise of the land is widened into the promise of a whole new creation. And the addition of in light differentiates between the new and the old inheritance, the glory of heaven, not the land of Canaan, and also sharpens the moral contrast with the kingdom of darkness where the young Christians had formerly dwelt. End quote. This is indeed good news. And Paul wants the young believers to grow in this knowledge. Our growth in the wisdom and knowledge of God is one of two main themes of Colossians. What that knowledge entails is the other important theme of Colossians. Jesus is the all-sufficient, cosmically powerful, enthroned Christ. And moving on to verses 15 and following, Paul provides additional reasons why the believers ought to be grateful for what God has done for them in Christ and can rest assured in the absolute sufficiency of what God has done for them in Christ. And with this exalted reflection on the person and work of Jesus, Paul here establishes the grounds for why he tells them later in chapter 2 that they must not let anyone take them captive through empty, false teaching that would wrongly attempt to make up for some supposed spiritual deficiency in Jesus. If there were any doubt among the Colossians regarding the greatness and sufficiency of Jesus, Paul begins this section by stating the deep connection shared by Jesus the enthroned Christ and God the Father. First, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, in a very mundane sense, the word image refers to an object shaped to resemble the form or appearance of something. In Mark 12, for example, Jesus held up the coin and asked, whose image is this? In pagan context, image can also refer to that which represents a deity, an idol. The Old Testament polemic against idolatry is partly rooted in the fact that, in one sense, nothing can adequately image God. No animal, no symbol, no created thing sufficiently depicts God. However, another reason the Old Testament prohibits idolatry is that God has already created an acceptable image of himself. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. I suspect this is true for many people in the churches represented here, listening. We often think being created in the image of God refers to humans as rational creatures, which are uniquely separate and apart from the animal kingdom. This is not wrong. However, the underlying Hebrew term for image in Genesis 1, 27 
Selim indicates that we represent God. We image him to all creation. According to the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, the human, quote, is God's viceroy, representative or witness among the creatures, quote. In Genesis 1, Adam was created in the image of God, that is, as God's commissioned representative who was graciously bestowed with royal prerogatives to rule over creation as God himself would see fit. The connection of these verses in Genesis 1 to Colossians 1, 15-20 becomes clear when we note the language of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There, the Greek word used for image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is the very same word Paul uses in Colossians 1, 15. But where the first Adam, the first created image of God, failed to usher in God's reign and rule to the earth, with disastrous consequences, no less, the last Adam and eternal image of God succeeded in ushering in the reign and rule of God as God always intended. Jesus, the glorified, ascended, enthroned Messiah, is he who perfectly images God and he who perfectly imaged what humans should have been. On this basis, Paul can also affirm that Jesus holds prime place as firstborn over all creation, a title in the Septuagint that, quote, could indicate temporal priority or superior rank, end quote, according to New Testament scholar Constantine Campbell. And not only in verse 15, but throughout this section, Paul draws from other Old Testament images to explain the cosmic significance and eternal grandeur of Jesus. After making use of imagery from Genesis 1, in Colossians 1.16, Paul adapts a different set of traditions regarding personified wisdom's role in creation from Proverbs and the deuterocanonical book known as the Wisdom of Solomon in order to assert Jesus' position of prominence over creation. Let's take a look at the relevant verses here. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. In Proverbs 8, personified wisdom begins to speak. Now, as we listen to these texts, don't forget what Paul has already said about Jesus in this role. Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And the author of the Wisdom of Solomon, who writes much later than Solomon, but assumes the character of Solomon, or speaks in honor of Solomon for this work, speaks of wisdom personified as a woman because Hebrew nouns, like Greek nouns, have grammatical gender. So, citing from the Wisdom of Solomon, selections from chapters 7 and 8. For she, meaning wisdom, is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things. And while remaining in herself, she renews all things. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. If riches are a desirable possession in life, what is richer than wisdom, the active cause of all things? And if understanding is effective, who more than she is fashioner of what exists? Also some selections from Wisdom of Solomon chapter 9. O God of my ancestors and Lord of mercy, 
who have made all things by your word and by your wisdom have formed humankind to have dominion over the creatures you've made. With you is wisdom, she who knows your works and was present when you made the world. All right, chances are, as I've read these verses, you may already be aware that Paul isn't the only New Testament author to assert that Jesus, the truest and greatest embodiment of God's wisdom, played an active role in creation. Surely John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 come to mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. Jesus is the agent through whom God created the cosmos, but unlike wisdom, Jesus was not created. He has existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. Turning back to Colossians 1, the things visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or rulers or authorities, were created through Jesus and for him. And as their creator, they are no match for him. They're also held together in him, Colossians 1 verse 17. A Jewish scholar, philosopher, and statesman, Philo of Alexandria, who lived approximately 20 B.C. to A.D. 50, wrote a series of commentaries on Scripture throughout his career. Philo consistently emphasized the importance of release, quote, from bodily passions to virtue through human reason yielding obedience to the divine logos, end quote, according to Philo scholar David Hay. For Philo, the logos served much the same role as personified wisdom, and in one of his works, he says the Logos is, quote, the bond of all things, the one who holds them together indissolubly and binds them fast, end quote. Paul may or may not have read Philo, but he's certainly familiar with the idea that God's agent in creation is also that which sustains all creation. Compare this with Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he sustains the universe by the word of his power. According to Charles Talbert, Paul, quote, presents Christ not only as creator, but also as the glue that holds the natural world together, end quote. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul says the church is the body of Christ. Douglas Moo explains, quote, In the ancient world, the head was conceived to be the governing member of the body, that which both controlled it, and provided for its life and sustenance. Quote. Jesus, the cosmically powerful anointed one, stands in a unique relationship with the church as its head, a relationship characterized by direction, provision, and protection for the believers. As the head of the church, he is preeminent, foremost, highest, and greatest. The firstborn son who rules over creation is also the firstborn son who came out from the dead. If there are any question, then, concerning Christ's greatness, Paul summarizes the unfathomably deep, all-encompassing sufficiency that is found in Jesus with this declaration in verse 19, For in him all God's fullness was pleased to dwell. The language here is a subtle but profound allusion to Psalm 68, verse 16. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode. Yes, but the Lord will dwell forever. This verse, which is Psalm 67, verse 17 in the Septuagint, is the only place where these Greek verbs occur together in the Septuagint. Desire, eudokeo, and dwell, katokeo. Although the notion of fullness is not found in this psalm, 
The imagery of God dwelling within his abode and filling it with his presence and glory is found throughout the Old Testament. For Paul, the fullness of God's glory and God's self are found in Jesus. The New Testament consistently presents Jesus as the greatest and perfect fulfillment of features or persons from the Old Covenants. In his commentary on Colossians and Philemon, G.K. Beale explains, quote, The presence of God's holy of holies on earth was the most preeminent reality in all Israel. So also the reason Christ should come to have first place in everything, alluding to Colossians 1.18, is that he is the inaugurated end-time temple in which God's fullness has begun to dwell. He is the escalated form of God's presence in the Holy of Holies, and as such, he himself is identified with God and is the most preeminent one together with God in the church and in all the cosmos, end quote. And Jesus points to this reality in Matthew 12, verse 6, when he informs the bewildered Pharisees that something greater than the temple is found in him, all the fullness of God himself. The author of Hebrews develops this message most fully, be it covenants, priesthoods, sacrifices, tabernacles, or temples. Jesus is greater than all these forerunners, precisely because Jesus is their fulfillment. And all of these pointed toward one thing, union with God. Now that the Colossians are in Christ, they too can begin to enjoy all the fullness of God that is found in Christ alone. As creation, resurrection, and union with God are accomplished through the ascended, exalted, and enthroned Christ in verses 15 through 19, Paul concludes the subsection in verse 20, where he details how through the cosmically powerful Christ, God reconciles all things to himself. Now, reconciliation means bringing all things in heaven and earth into the proper relationship which God always intended, and this is done by means of Jesus' atoning blood. To conclude our discussion of verses 15 through 20, I like how G.K. Beale draws out the underlying implication of these verses. Quote, The first things of the old cosmos point to and thus become the basis and the pattern for the last things of the new cosmos inaugurated by Christ. The main point in the comparison is that just as the pre-incarnate Christ was the divine sovereign over the temporary first creation, so certainly he will be the divine human sovereign over the new, everlasting creation inaugurated by his resurrection, his defeat of evil powers, the establishment of the church, and his reconciling work, and consummated in the entirety of the new heavens and new earth. End quote. This is Jesus. This is the Colossians king. In verses 21 through 23, Paul gives them the so what. At one point, the Colossians were alienated and opposed to God. But now they have experienced the initial stage of reconciliation, which will be fully realized when the final reconciliation of verse 20 is achieved. In the meantime, remain faithful. Now, as I close this first lecture... I want us to imagine that we're young Christians in a predominantly polytheistic or animistic culture, a culture that's much more spiritually sensitive than what Western culture has been. Now, that may be shifting, but that's another conversation for another time. As a new Christian, you no longer worship a plethora of deities and spirits because you've pledged your loving loyalty to the one true God. Father of the enthroned Messiah, who sits high above all creation and yet knows you by name and loves you as his own. While you continue to grow in faithfulness, your past experiences have also taught you 
that hostile spiritual forces are a part of daily reality. Not only that, but some new teachers have arrived in town saying that the Christ is indeed powerful, but for you to experience God's protection and fullness, you need to do X, Y, and Z to supplement what Christ has done. Can you imagine the debilitating confusion and doubt that would begin to grow in the hearts of these spiritually young believers? What the believers need, and this is not from me, this is from Paul, but what the believers need is to grow in the knowledge of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's why Paul reiterates the importance of their growth in the knowledge and wisdom of God. It's not to satisfy their intellectual curiosity. It's because a proper understanding of who God is, call it sound doctrine or spiritually healthy theology, that's absolutely essential to generating the right living God made us for in the first place. To sum it all up, Jesus is the all-sufficient King who perfectly satisfies your every spiritual need. You do not need Christ plus because He reigns over all spirits. He lives in you and you in Him. And this is extraordinarily good news for the Colossian believers. Mm-hmm.